he had that problem. And he writes to a church that, that has this issue. They have folks, actually, who are they're sinning. And, and they're not just sinning. It's not that one-off sort of sin. It's a constant sin oh, that's unrepentant. It's almost as if they're being asked to repent, but they're giving Jesus the bird. They're flipping Jesus off, and they're saying, uh, no, no, I don't need to do any of that. I have grace after all. And Paul, in the midst of that unrepentant sin, recognizes that there is a church who has said, grace, grace, God's grace, grace is greater than all of my sin, but they know no truth. And this morning we recognize that Paul says, hey, if we're going to live in this community together, then we have to love each other enough to be willing to say, hey, I think there's a problem here. I want to love you enough to not leave you the way that you are. And so this morning, we, we peer into God's Word Seeking to hold in tension two things, grace and truth. And I want you to make sure that you understand that the church will always be a people where others can come and find and follow Jesus. That this is a people where sinners can belong, where we find forgiveness and salvation. And this is a people that will always challenge each other to live for Jesus. And what we find this morning is that who we are will define what we do. That how we must live in this holiness that God is asking us to live toward is founded in our identity. That our union with God, our union with Christ, will define our activity in the world. So that we can answer this question together, would you, would you grab a Bible? Go ahead and get out your Bible. There, there will be a Bible in the, uh, the tray underneath of your chair if you need one. And join me in the book that Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians. Join me in 1 Corinthians. Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. If you get to 2 Corinthians, go back a couple pages. 1 Corinthians. Our identity defines our activity. Our union with God changes our character, changes our lifestyle. When we become followers of Jesus, when we become 
a part of this community, then what's expected of us is, quite frankly, different. This holiness that we most desire, uh, to be holy like God is holy, is to be a part of our everyday life. Listen for the language that Paul uses that talks about our union with Christ, our identity with Him. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and beginning in verse 11. He's reminding them of their identity. And this is what some of you were, he writes. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I mean, do you hear that? Uh, he's reminding them of, of exactly who they are. Hey, uh, you're Christians. You've called yourself Christians. You're identifying yourself as Christians. And Paul, in using these three phrases uh, in concert with one another as he, as he puts them on line after line, uh, paralleling one after the other, he's saying, I want you to recognize what Jesus has already done for you. You fundamentally changed. You have union with Christ. You see, it's the story of the Gospel, isn't it? I mean, many of us, uh, we come to church because we have this deep longing to recognize the good news of Jesus and that grace that He has given to us. And Paul here is saying, hey, uh, there's these two rails of grace and truth. I don't want you to forget about the grace, uh, nor do I want you to forget about the truth. But the grace of God, of uh, this good news, is that you were once a sinner. You were once blind, but now you can see. You see, back in Genesis chapter 3, uh, Adam and Eve, they joined in union with death uh, by, by taking fruit that God said not to eat. They joined union with death. Now God, at that point, uh, he couldn't become union with death. Uh, humanity had become union with death. And so what did God do? He said, well, if I am going to save humanity from death that they're now unified with, then I will become unified with humanity so that I can save them from that death. And Jesus came unified in humanity so that He might then be unified with death and go on to death and unlock the door from the other side. And when He unlocked the door from the other side, He allowed the opportunity for you and I to be un united and unified with life. That's Jesus. That's good news, isn't it? You see, that's something that you and I couldn't do. And he's saying, hey, in your baptism, you remember that? Maybe it's been five years. Maybe it's been ten years. For some in this room, maybe it's been 40 or 50 or 60, maybe 70 years ago. Uh, but do you remember your baptism? You were washed. Uh, there was something that happened there. Uh, and it's, baptism, gang, is not just a matter of you and I being obedient and saying, well, I guess, sure, whatever, I'll go get wet and, and getting dunked underwater. No, there's something powerful that's happening in the midst of our baptism. 
Jesus is partnering us with Him. We're being unified with Him in His death and in His resurrection. And we're being unified with the very life. And that life is from Jesus. And Paul is saying, hey, do, do, do you remember who you are? You were washed. You've been unified with God. And he goes on, he says, you were those two $10 theological words that he uses there, you were justified and sanctified. What he's saying is, hey, you have been made right with God through Jesus because you've been united, united with Him. Your identity is in Him. Who you are has been changed because of Him. You stand right before Him now. Uh, you're supposed to be living this holy life before Him now. You want to live like the church in a messy world? Then recognize who you are. And He doesn't stop there. He goes on. I want you to hear some of the unification language that he has uh, throughout chapter 6. Now, he, he's talking about specific sorts of things. He's talking about specific sins uh, that have been flaunted in this Corinthian church. Uh, but he's really getting at this idea that you've been united with Christ and who you are determines how you should live. That if we are going to talk about following Jesus and knowing Jesus and being united with Jesus, then we have to be willing to live to the truth of Jesus. And he says in verse 15, he's talking about our union with Him. He says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Your bodies our members. They're limbs and organs. The, the word members there might kind of hide something that we need to know that Paul is trying to get at. Your bodies are limbs and organs of Christ Himself. He's saying, hey, you're so united with Jesus in your identity and who you are that it's as if if you were, trying, if you were to try and separate yourself from who Christ is, if you were trying to break that union of who you are, it would be like you trying to uh, separate uh, yourself, your body, from your limbs and your organs. Go ahead, give it a try. If you were to try and take your limbs and your organs out of your body right now, what would happen to your body? You'd destroy it. He said, you are so united with Christ. You are in such union of life with Him. That you need to know the seriousness of the sort of sin that you're getting involved in. You can't be united with life and united with death all at the same time. Recognize who you are and live toward that kind of truth. Do you hear it? That's who you are. And he doesn't stop there. Now, he, he's going to talk again about a, another very particular sort of sin. He's, he's talking to this church about some sexual indiscretion that's been taking place. But he gets us at this idea of unity by talking to us about what God has done for us. If you're in chapter 6, go now into verse 19. 
He says, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. I know this, he says, because you were bought at a price. Honor God with your bodies. In chapter 5, verse 7, he, he tells us uh, how it is that we have been redeemed by Jesus. Uh, he says in verse 7, he says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You see, we have been set free, haven't we? Woohoo! Set free by Jesus. We have been shackled by sin, but set free from Him. Why? Because He was willing to come and, and be our sacrifice to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, here's the thing that we sometimes miss. You see, Jesus didn't buy us uh, so that we could just be free from the master of sin. You see, if we think that Jesus died uh, simply so that we could be set, be set free uh, to live for ourselves, then we have got it all wrong. If we think that Jesus redeemed us and set us free from the shackles of sin uh, so that we could simply master ourselves, then we have a misunderstanding. Jesus never bought us back with the Gospel uh, with His own body and His own blood shed for us. God didn't send Him uh, fully God and fully man so that we could be unified with Him just to set us free and say, sayonara, see you later, have a good time. Grace, grace, God's grace. No. He set us free. Why? So that we would have a new Master. And that new master is not ourselves. It's Jesus Himself. You see, when we're set free from the master of sin and the slavery to sin, we gain a new master and His name is Jesus. He set us free from darkness so that we might live for light. He set us free from one boss so that He could be our boss. Romans 6 says it better than I can. Paul says it in a very different way, but it seems so clear. Romans 6, verse 18, You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Hey, we're always going to have a master. We're always going to have a Lord. The question is, which Lord are we going to choose? Are we going to choose the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who we have been unified in life and light, or are we going to choose a Lord of ourselves, of sin, and call it freedom and grace? What do we do? What do we do? How do we approach habitual, unrepentant sin in the church? What do we do? How do we do that? Paul says the first thing we have to do is we have to be reminded of who we are and whose we are. He's the Lord and we're not. He's redeemed us to be our Lord. And Paul goes on, in this church that's struggling, and he says, I want you to understand because of who you are that your life has to live differently. 
Because of who you are, your choices have to change. Your habits have to change. Your practices have to change. Oh, let me, let me say again, the church, the community of God's people is a, is a safe haven for sinners. Uh, Paul is not talking about sinners out there in the world. He's talking about sinners in the church. He's talking about people who are in the church who habitually are knowingly involved in, in certain levels of sin and they have said, I don't need to change. And He invites them to change. He invites them to change by re- helping them recognize who they are. And says, I want you to see something. I want you to change. And He invites us into a truth that's tough. He says, you may have to cut them out. You may have to take them out like, like the garbage to clean things up. Otherwise, there will be repercussions in the church that you're not ready for. He's going to say, and you're going to mourn it. You're going to be so saddened that it's almost like you've gone to a funeral. But if you don't take the rotten apple out, it may affect the entire barrel. You see, this church has become proud of their sin. Tolerant of their sin. Uh, for, for Paul, they've become tolerant of a man who is sleeping with his mother-in-law. Uh, for Paul, that is, several people wealthy in the church who are uh, trying to extract money out of other people in the church by uh, rigging a small claims court, people's court, Judge Judy, that sort of thing. And they're rigging the system so that they can extract the most amount of money. And Paul goes, what, what are you doing? Can't you judge this for yourself? There's drunkenness among other things. And I'm wondering at times, for a church like Whiting Christian Church, we're good people. If we're tempted to say, that could never happen here. Mike, I'm not even sure why uh, you're, you're even preaching this message. We don't have a problem with sin. But what if we could? What if there were a time in the history or the future or the present of Whiting Christian Church where maybe we began to have a problem with those who were habitual sinners, constant in their sin, uh, unrepentant that the community now knows about. Would it be possible, church, that there could be people who gather here who call themselves by the name of Christ and identify with Him? That would say of their sexuality, it doesn't matter. I could sleep whoever I want to sleep with. Whenever I want to. Uh, Maybe that's a, a husband or a wife that's having an affair, but nobody really wants to say anything because that's hard. Or maybe there is a boyfriend and girlfriend and they decided to 
uh, to go and to live together outside of the bounds of marriage. And yet they call themselves Christian. And yet when asked about it, I don't need to change. I can live however I want. Grace, grace, God's grace. Is it possible, church, that there could ever in the history or, or perhaps in the present or the future of Whiting Christian Church be people, uh, maybe a leader or a teacher who, who is so angry and rageful uh, that they intimidate others who, who are operating in their area of ministry so that they might have control over it? And yet, when confronted, when asked to repent, they say, I, I don't need to repent. I've got nothing to change. You all are the problem. Is it possible that there could be a teacher who, who manipulates God's Word to say what, what they want it to say? And so he or she begins to, to sow seeds of division and manipulation within the church, and yet when, when asked about it, they say, I, I know God's Word. You are the problem, not me. Is it possible? Is it possible, church, that there could be those sins that operate underneath the surface of a congregation? And it's there, isn't it, where we begin to go, oh, oh, I see. I see how tough sin is to approach. Because some of us would say, oh, surely we would say something. Uh, but maybe it's easier to tolerate and to allow than it is to discipline. Because riding on the rails of grace and truth is hard. It's tough. I mean, it gets to the point that some from the outside might even say, well, you're proud of your grace. You're proud of your tolerance and your allowance for sin. That's what's happening in Corinth. Paul says two different times. Once in verse 2 of chapter 5. Once in verse 6. He says, and you're proud of all of this. In verse 6, he says, you're puffed up about it. You're bragging about it. You're boasting about uh, how much allowance there is for sin in your church. Grace, grace, God's grace. He says, but you're not mourning. You're not saddened by it. But you should be. Catch the words in verse 2 of chapter 5. He says, you're proud. You shouldn't, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out your fellow man who has been doing this? Shouldn't you mourn? And that word for put out is like take out the garbage. He's saying, hey, there's something stinking up the community in Corinth and I need you to know about it and I think you need to put it out. In verse 7, he says it again. He says you need to get rid of it. He says get rid of the old yeast so that you may be new, a new unleavened batch as you really are. And he gives us this wonderful illustration. He gives us this illustration of fermented bread. 
You see, in the old times, they would take bread and they would rip off a piece that had already fermented, that had already had yeast worked all the way through it, and they would take a little lump off of it. They would tear it off, and, and they would take a new batch of dough, and then they would, they, they would just fold it right in. They would mix it in. Have you ever done this? And you punch it in, and you roll it in, and, and, and before long, what happens? That one little dough, that one little fermented piece, it works through the entirety of all the rest of the dough. And he says, hey, hey, guess what? When you're unwilling, when you're too tolerant, uh, when you're not getting rid of the sin, that's exactly what is happening to your church. Is that one little fermented piece, it's working through the entire rest of the dough, and you better be careful because one rotten apple can ruin the whole barrel. He says, instead, I want you to become a new batch. Now forget about trying to rip off some little piece of the old. I want you to become a new batch. I want you to become who you are. I want you to live to grace and truth that you know about. And church, I want you to see the result of this sort of discipline. I want you to see the result of a church that says, I love you enough to not leave you that way. I want you to see the result of a church that says, hey, we're not going to allow habitual, constant, unrepentant sin to happen here in this community. Oh, I know there's lots that we wish Paul could comment on, and there's lots more that I wish I understood. But look at chapter, chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. He said, when you're assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this person over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. Now here's the prize. Here's the reward. Here's the result. So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. He's saying the result of a church is willing to to confront unrepentant sin that's really willing to handle the tough stuff of being the community of unrepentant sin of people that say I don't need to change that they're flaunting it around that they're boasting about their sin he's saying hand them over put them out take out the garbage make sure not to associate with them don't mix around with them and he's not talking about the sinners outside the church. Oh no, uh, we know that the, the church, uh, this community is a place where people can come and find and follow Jesus for all people to belong. He's not talking about the sinners outside. He's talking about the sinners in the family. And he says, the result is restoration. I don't know exactly what Paul means, to be honest, when he says, hand him over to Satan. Uh, but I, get, I gather the meaning uh, to say, hey, uh, put him out so that they might understand that there might be repentance and they might be restored and saved. For when Jesus comes again, they can be a part of the community again. Uh, church, do you see these two rails this morning? There's a rail of grace that says we are loved by God unconditionally. We have an unmerited favor that we have, have accepted from Him. And yet we have this rail of truth. And we must hold them in tension with one another. Having been a person who has approached others who are habitually in sin, I can tell you that it is hard. And it's tough. 
And yet it seems from God's Word this morning that He's imploring us to be the sort of community that will live not just for grace, but for truth as well. At the end of the day, we are not determining people's eternal state. That's for God to decide. Our job is to be faithful. To live like the church in a messy world. By traveling the rails of grace and Gracious God, we love You and we thank You. And Lord, I'm tired of preaching hard messages. I'm confessing that to You. There's too much angst in my own soul. And yet, Lord, You have set within us the desire to preach Your Word. So I pray, Lord, for all who will see this, for all who will hear it, that we'll become the kind of community that rides on these rails, both of grace and truth. That we will not ride one or the other. That we'll not be offended by truth. But Lord, that we'll live toward it. And we'll become the kind of community that lives like You in the world. We love You. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.